The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his service, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out and into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. A lot of early mistakes. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's nice to hear from them and hear that different kind of viewpoint. And I think these people that we've heard are all serious about God. That's one thing I would say about them. And so they're looking at it from a little different perspective. And so uh, I kind of wanted to share my perspective. I'm, I'm a historian, and I was educated that way, and my inclination is that way. And uh, so I, I like to look at things from a historical perspective. And if I look at the Bible or the Old Testament, or the New Testament, I look at it that way. And I, t- I try to think about what God's doing in history because I don't think it all kind of stopped, you know, when Jesus uh, rose from the dead or when Paul wrote the doctrines of Christianity. I think it continues, and so God's involved in the world, and I try to get a handle on what he's doing. And I think it's a hard thing. It's not easy to do because it's, it's kind of easy to be political and, you know, take your political opinions and give it the God stamp. People have done that historically. But I think we're still obligated to try to get a handle on what God's doing in our world. And so I try to do that. And, of course, the prophets, they got the handle on what God was doing before it happened. And we're kind of in the position, the advantage of looking backward and saying, wow, it sounds like that will, that's what God is doing there. So that's the perspective that I have And as I come to, uh, to this parable. Uh, I'm not going to do the whole parable. I'm going to kind of kind of skip up through to uh, the, the wedding garment. I think there's kind of three general parts to it, the invitation, the wedding garment, and then uh, those last seven words, many are called, but few are chosen, which we're going to spend a lot of time there because I like it. It's a tough, a tough go, but I think it, there's something that we can have out of that. So initially, uh, the audience, the Pharisees, I don't think there's any question about who they are. 
and, and Christ's message to them is, is very concentrated, very easy to see what's going on there. I think they understood it. I don't think we understand what's going on there with the Pharisees. And as, as time evolves, we know that the revelation of Christ, even though God stands outside of time, the revelation of God is in time. So we have the Old Testament, then we have Jesus and the crucifixion, resurrection, Paul explaining to us what all that meant. And so God is revealed in time. And so at this point in time, that's all cloudy. The future, who the Messiah is, what it means is really kind of cloudy. and Nobody really knows. But Jesus kind of gives us a little, you know, a little look into the future here. A little, we get, as this parable moves on, it gets more prophetic instead of just talking about that day. And we see that uh, he talks about the Pharisees, and they were the leaders. They were the ones that understood God. They understood the law. They were the keepers of, of the Jewish religion. And that they initially have this call, and they reject the Messiah. That's what's going on. They reject him, and, and, they, and they harm him. And, and as you see about them uh, killing the messenger, it's also the prophets before Jesus that were killed. And also, eventually, in the next few days, Jesus is going to be killed by these guys. And so that's, that's that audience. And then the have-nots, you know, the next one's where he goes out into the countryside and he invites the people, you know, on the, on the highways and the byways. And, and that's the poor of Israel or the, the sinners, you know, the sinners that are labeled sinner by that society. A lot like maybe our people in prison would be labeled by us. And these are the people that he invites in and they come in. And then, of course, if you think about how that, how that moves on after Jesus' death, and we go to Acts and we go to the epistles, we realize that he's talking about the Gentiles then. So that thing evolves. It doesn't just stay with these down and outers, down, down and outers in Israel. It, it includes the Gentiles and it, it, and it mushrooms from there. And then we can think about, as it moves up into our culture, we can think about maybe the slaves. You know, obviously uh, during slavery time, you know, the, the slave owners didn't want slaves educated, didn't want Christianity, because they knew when that happened, it would open doors for them. And so they tried to keep it away from them, but Christianity rolled through the slave population, you know, in the early 19th century in the United States. And there's other groups. I'm sure that's many, many groups that would fall into that category as the down-and-outers. So the call goes out to the down-and-outers, and then there's the wedding banquet. You have the banquet, and uh, the banquet is kind of the idea of maybe heaven or the end of time, when everything is reconciled, when all the thing that God wants to do has been done, kind of the big party, you know, everybody gets together, and then we have this guy who comes to the party uh, without the proper clothes on. And you have to realize that the, it may be a little bit vague to us, but the Israelis, or the Jews of the day, they understood this. They understood what this meant. And because you think about the conditions of the time you know, people were dirty, you know. There was not any, hardly any running water. It's a desert, semi-desert area, probably no hot water. And people had to walk long distances, and they were dusty and dirty. And so when there was a celebration, if there was a king or a, 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 man, a, a rich man uh, giving a wedding, you know, having a wedding celebration, these people got new clothes so they could come and present themselves in a fine manner. And so this thing is all through um, the Scripture, and I want to read some Scriptures that talk about being clothed and what it does to the person in the eyes of the, of the, the king or the, the, of God that it, it, it gives righteousness to that person. So let me, let me read some here. This is uh, Isaiah 64, 6. And it talks about 
how the master felt about this guy who had the wrong clothes on. For we have all become one who is unclean, and all of our righteousness is of a polluted garment, and we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So this guy's come in with his clothing, and it's not suitable for this celebration. And I'm kind of reminded of uh, Charlie Chapman. Remember the old Charlie Chapman silent movies? And he would stand in front of the mirror and have his hat on, and it was all broken, and have his, his, uh, his coat ripped and shoes, and he would be going, you know, straightening himself up and smiling and thinking, gee, I look pretty good. You know, I, I'm not too bad. That's what he thought. And, you know, it's like that favorite shirt of yours that's got a spot of grease that you love to wear anyway, and you know nobody's going to see it. You know, so... So he was polluted, and this guy was polluted, but he didn't think he was polluted. He thought he was all right, but the king knew he was polluted. Now let me read some other Old Testament references. This is uh, Exodus, talking about uh, when Moses, when the temple worship began or the, in the tabernacle and how Aaron was clothed and what it meant. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, that he may serve me as priest. And then Zechariah. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I have put on fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And here's another uh, uh, Isaiah reference. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And again, uh, getting back, let's go back to Romans here. And, and after we understood what Christianity meant, this is what Paul talks about, clothing yourself in Christ. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So we can see all these changes. Even the Jews, the Jews understood that this clothing, that they had to be clothed in this righteousness. And somehow, by the master or the king giving them clothes, it, it gave them righteousness too. It wasn't just an outer thing. It was a spiritual thing. And then as Christ, you know, as we understand the doctrine of Christianity, we understand that Christ, that we clothe ourselves in Christ because our righteousness is not good enough. It, we don't have enough righteousness to stand before God the Father clean so that he doesn't see all of our soil. And so that's how we clothe ourselves in Christ. And so you can see how this thing, this idea of, of clothing ha has evolved. And the next part of the scripture talks about, um, I'm going to get to this point, these seven, you know, these seven final words, uh, many are called or, but few are chosen. And I think that uh, in our culture, I think we have lifted up this idea of free will, you know, and, and, you know, you think of the 60s, you know, do your own thing. That's kind of free will on steroids, you know. And so we really do that in choosing this and choosing that. And so I think in America, we really understand that idea. And I think if, as Christians, we can kind of see some roads that we're beginning to go down that we're afraid of, 
because of this emphasis on the individual and taking our own choice. So I'm not going to make that argument. I think the Bible has that argument. I think there's scripture that talks about us choosing uh, God, and I think they're legitimate. But I'm not going to make that. I'm going to go on the other side of the argument. I'm going to take the argument about God choosing, God being the one that chooses, and I'll let you live with what you know about free will because I don't think it's untrue. But there's a contradiction there. There's a contradiction between this idea of free will and the idea of God choosing. And it's existed in Christianity, and people have known about it ever since there has been a Christianity, and the theologians have argued, and there's been wars fought over it. So I'm not going to settle that argument. I think uh, when we first, uh, we first started this series, uh, Jacob sent this list around of parables, and you could, you know, if you emailed him real quick, you got the one you wanted, you got to choose two. And so I chose... Uh, I don't remember what the first one was, but the one I chose was, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know that one? My favorite parable. And I had a vision of preaching on that and getting the kids come in and everybody could stand up and do the Sunday school thing and we get all into the sermon. But he says, I don't know. I don't know if you should do that. Why don't you do this one? And I'm thinking, boy, yeah, you're going to give me these last seven words that, you know, people have killed each other over for the last 2,000 years. And I'm going to settle it for you guys. You know, you're going to understand what's going on after this. So, but I thought, well, maybe it's God. You know, I've been a person that often doesn't want to do what God wants me to do. So I tend to entertain the possibility that God's speaking to me, even though I don't agree. Not like Jonah. You know, I didn't want to go in the whale for three days. So, so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I prayed about how to go about it. And so I wanted to put the, you know, the, the bulk of my message on God choosing, because it's meant a lot in my life. And uh, I wanted to share that with you. So we sort of have, there's kind of like two parts to it. It's like, he doesn't choose some people, but he chooses other people. So, why is that? I can't really answer that question, but I can tell you, I can tell you some parts of it. I can give you something that you'll understand it better. It's, I can't solve it. In fact, uh, I was reading, um, I, w- I was a science teacher, you know, talking about choosing. I had a... Uh, assistant principal that told me I was going to teach science. I'm a historian. You're going to teach science, Gary. She had a big long finger and she said, I need a science teacher. I said, okay. So I taught science uh, middle school for 15 years. And, you know, choosing, right? I chose what I wanted. So I read the science section of the Times every Tuesday and uh, even though I don't understand it sometimes, but here's a, a selection. The firewall paradox. An unexpected paradox involving black holes put into basic tenets of modern science against one another. The theory of quantum mechanics, which govern situation particles, and Einstein's theory of general relativity, which explains how gravity works. And so now these, these are high science ideas, you know, and I'm not saying I understood this article, but I read it because I was a science teacher and I feel obligated to read all this stuff. But these are high scientific ideas, and they're in paradox with each other. They both can't be true, but they seem to be true. And they haven't figured out how to reconcile it. And that's just like this idea of free will and God choosing you. And I heard a pastor explain it one time. He said, and it's a functional explanation, not explaining the theology of it, but the function of it. He said, it's like you have a lot of people in a big field. And there's a gate. And over the gate, it says, whosoever will. And so there's certain people that walk through the gate and they go on the other side and they look back and on this side of it, it says, chosen from the beginning of the world. And so that's a functional explanation. It doesn't explain the 
the, the, the paradox, but it talks about kind of how it works. And so I believe that both of these things work. I believe they both work. And so to begin with, I would want to talk about why God doesn't choose certain people. And again, I might talk about why he doesn't choose certain movements or nations. And let's, uh, a couple of scriptures here. Um, get this thing in my hand here. So this is Job. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. So we can see by that that he's in charge of that. Another Job uh, reference here. This is Job 34, 29. When he gives quietness, peace, and security from oppression, who can condemn? When he hides his faith, withdrawing his favor and help, who then can behold him and make him gracious? Neither it be a nation or a man by himself. So we see that God's in charge of that. And I don't think that's just an Old Testament reference to you know, Israel and you know, Assyria and all the kingdoms of the world. I think that's, that's who he is. That's his nature. So we know that he does allow certain nations to go ahead and do what they're going to do, sort of play their cards out, play their hands out. And the most famous example in Scripture is obviously Pharaoh. We know the story of Pharaoh and uh, uh, the Exodus and, and how he treated Israel. And so you have Pharaoh who has experienced all this tragedy. And the final tragedy, the final curse the firstborn is killed of all the cattle and all the people except for the Jews. And so he lets them go, he lets the people go, and this is what he says. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the way that the Lord was able to create this memory in Israel is by letting Pharaoh play his hand out. So, in, in a bigger sense than just this one incident, you have a time where you have to, God has to show that man can't fix it. If he steps in every time, if there's every time everything goes bad, he says, okay, I'm going to fix that. Then we don't know that that wouldn't work out. So he lets the hand be played out. And I think it's something like, I think in terms of Nazi Germany, think about Nazi Germany, you know, that 1933 to 1945, this rise of this tremendous military power, had this, had this ideology, National Socialism, about this is what was going to fix it. This was going to fix the world, this kind of belief system. And then this horrible wreck, if you read about Berlin in 1945, it's beyond biblical proportions of what happened in Berlin in 1945. Just horrible. So how can you look at that and say, well, I don't know, what does God have to do with that? Give me a break. You know, think of all the things that they did. And so God let that hand play so we could see. We're supposed to look at that and see that this is what happens without God. This is how things work out. And in 1944, there was an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. You guys know that story. And it almost looked like it should, have, it should have been successful. You know, the guy got it in there. They blew up where he was, the bunker where he was staying. And Hitler kind of miraculously escapes it. And you think, well, why would God do that? Why wouldn't he just kill this guy? And then we, and, and even Bonhoeffer, Eric Bonhoeffer, the pastor from Germany, was implicated in that, in that assault and executed for it the next year. So why would God let that happen? And millions of people died after that. The worst part of the war was between then and the end of the war. And so, that's, and so to me, that's kind of the God 
That's the God that we have. And I know we don't like that. I know that that's kind of like, well, man, if, you know, if that was me, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I think God has to let those hands play out so we can see what it's like without God. And I think all the isms, you know, you think of communism or even socialism or even democracy, when these hands play out with God, without God, you're going to see how they play out. And so I'm not saying there's not things in those systems that are correct. I'm not saying there's things that, there's not things in there that do work, but you should not embrace them if they're godless. You shouldn't embrace them because eventually they're going to play out to the bad. It's not going to work out. And then we had individualized. I don't think you have a right to say, well, you know, this guy's not chosen. You know, I don't, you, don't have, you have to act like, from the church's point of view, everybody's chosen. You preach the gospel, and you, and you let it set, and you see what happens. But we can see lives that have been destroyed. Drug addiction and suicide and people that have gotten all kinds of trouble. And at least up to the point that we understand this person's life, we know that they haven't been chosen at this point in time, at least, that their lives are destroyed. And so that's how God shows us that we need him. If we could do it without him, what do we need him for? I mean, you know, I understand myself better than God. I don't understand myself really well, but I understand myself better than God. Why do I want to wrestle with him if, if I don't need him, if I don't have to have him? So God isn't only righteous, but he's also right. You know, it's not just righteousness or holiness or powerfulness. He's correct. The way he does things is a way that works. And so we have to see that negative, that negative example. I think, that, I think that's very important for us to do. So let me talk about the chosen. We talked about why, and I don't think that answers theologically the whole question. I don't mean to say that that's an answer, but that's a partial answer. That's kind of picking over the, you know, the turkey, you know, trying to digest the parts of it that we can understand a little bit, but still not understanding the whole thing. So let me talk about the chosen here. So this is a, uh, a quote from Ephesians. For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, born anew, that we may do the good works which God predestined for us, taking paths which he prepared instead of time, outside of time, that we should walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us to live. And 1 Peter 1 and 2, 1 2, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And James 2.5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. And finally, here is, uh, this one is uh, John fifteen sixteen. Make it work here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So we can see there's lots of scripture for it. I know that, and again, I'll say again, there's scripture for free will, and you, can go, you, could just, you could preach a sermon on free will and get that, but I think we kind of get free will. I don't think we get being chosen. I, don't, I think that's pretty alien to us. But the Bible is full, of, is full of that kind of idea about him choosing us and how important it is. And I think in terms of my life, 
I think of the things, I think of my first girlfriend. I was 17 years old and in love with this girl. You know, and I loved her. Man, I wanted, I wanted to be with her forever. I chose her, but you know what? Two years later, that was gone. That was a thing of the past. And I, I got, I've been divorced. I got married in church, pastor, relatives, congregation, did the traditional marriage vows, you know how they go. And 20 years later, I'm divorced from her. So how, much, how important was that choosing? How powerful was that choosing? How much did that keep me in that relationship? Apparently not enough. I've been in three different professions. I've lived in four primary places. I moved to Montana in 1973. I thought I'd never leave. It was heaven to me. 14 years later, I was in China. You know, go figure. So I'm a person who I find it, I don't have a hard time choosing stuff, but I guess I have a hard time sticking with it. But all, during all those choosings that I had moved along, and sometimes I kind of left God for a couple years, you know, kind of went adrift, and every time that I came back, it was him who brought me back. It wasn't me. It wasn't my will to come back. It was him that brought me back. I have 40 years of being a Christian, and I've drifted, and I've been here and there, and I've been in countries where I kind of forgot about God because I was so busy kind of absorbing the culture and not being able to really handle it, and God was always there for me. And so I'm telling you, this choosing thing is really important. This choosing thing as a Christian, to realize that God chooses you is a lot bigger deal than you choosing him. And I'm not saying that in some respect you don't choose him, but him choosing you is the big deal. And let me, uh, I'm getting winding down here. So here's another, I love this particular verse, and I'm going to use it probably a little differently than you've ever heard it. But this is Joshua 2, 4 through 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates, and in Egypt, excuse me, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So right after that, the Israelites say, oh yeah, we want to serve God too. How long do you think it lasted? few generations. Before you know it, they're worshiping idols again. So that's how important, I mean, that's how strong that decision is, you know, from the human point of view. That decision is not very strong. And if you're, you know, I guess I get to back, look back on all the, you know, the waffling and waving in my life, and maybe you're not there yet, but you probably will be someday. And you can look back and you can realize that it's really God choosing you that's what really keeps you together. Very important. And tying this back into the, the garment of righteousness that's put on, and I want to read this. Uh, this is the last uh, reference. So this is uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So you realize that even the faith that makes you believe is something God's given you not yours. And it seems like if you can claim that faith, you know, you can come in front of God and you got a little handkerchief as well. At least I believed. You know, I, I mean, I might have been a bad guy, but at least I believed. So you got some little bit of that righteousness that you want to bring to God. And God doesn't want you to have any of that righteousness because to me, we're really pretty bad. We're always trying to get things that justify us. Whatever we do, I think my dog, I walk my dog in the morning and every bit of little piece of food on the street he eats. 
He sniffs around for it, and he'll gobble it up before I can stop him. That's the way we are. We're always looking for something. And we, some of us hide it well. You know, we're kind of humble, and we know how to avoid it. But we're always looking for something to justify us. And that faith, to me, when, it, when Paul talks about faith being a gift of God, that's, that's so. There's no, other, there's no other thing that you can bring. You can say, well, I at least was faithful. But he said, you can't even say that because it's God that brings faith. And so the imagery that I have of it is that you ever take a, a, a hot wire that's broken in two, and on one hand, you've got a hot wire in this hand, a hot wire in this hand, and on one hand, there's your need for God. You know, you're, you're, maybe you're, you know, you're really in trouble. You want God to help you out, or you understand you don't want to go to hell. You know, you want God to take you. And on the other hand, there's this story. There's this, this fairy tale about Jesus that almost nobody can believe that, especially us. You know, you know, raised from the dead and perfect and went to heaven. Sits on, you know, so here we might like that, te- we might like that story. And as we're kids, you know, we all the fairy tales you used to hear when you were kids and they lived happily ever after. And about 14, you know, it's all a lie. And there's that disappointment. So that's that kind of fairy tale. And so here God comes along and he says, okay, I'm going to let you believe that. And if you put those two wires together, they'll arc. You see that arc? There'll be an arc, electricity arc will jump those wires and make a connection. That's the Holy Spirit. That's when Jesus said, you can't come to me unless the Holy Spirit draws you. You've got to have that thing to make you believe. That's what makes us believe that the Holy Spirit convinces us that that's true, and we accept that. That's what, that's what the gift of faith is. The ability to believe that fairy tale. And I think that's very important. And so when you have that, you can't claim anything. And I think that as we, as we go through life, and as you rely on God, you're going to realize, I mean, it's not, only a, it's not only theology, it's not just a theory that emphasizes God choosing you, it's a reality in your life. And you know, I believe in free will, but my salvation depends on God choosing me. Amen. So we're going to go into a time of communion. Uh, and as you take communion today, we have the bread and the wine. And I want you to think about how far he went choosing you, how much he sacrificed to choose you as you take this uh, bread and wine.